welcome to the Sacred City Life Podcast. This is your host, Pastor Justin Dean. This podcast is all about helping you follow Jesus in the everyday, normal rhythms of life. I've got all the gentlemen on the podcast with me. Guys, will you say hello? How's it going, Alex Tate, Sacred City Youth Director? Kevin Kenora, Pastoral Assistant. And Rob Spectra, Pastor of Discipleship. All right. Well, welcome back to the podcast. We do appreciate you listening and you liking and you sharing and you subscribing as much as possible and as much as this is helpful to you. Um, today, I wanted to talk about Tim Keller. I'm not sure if you are aware of it. You might not know who Tim Keller is, so we're going to fill you in on that. But I want to talk about it because Tim Keller has had a pretty profound influence on my life and on the ministry here at Sacred City. And uh, we want to talk about him. You've heard me quote him, no doubt. If you've listened to any of my sermons, you've heard me quote him. And uh, the <clears throat> reason we want to do that is because Tim Keller has, he passed away and he, he died last week. I think it was by the time you listen to this, it's going to be a couple weeks ago. And um, he arguably is probably the most influential evangelical leader of this, of the last 30 or 40 years. Mm. And that's, that's arguable, but at least widespread influence. Mm. Um, I think he's going to, he's probably got the, the biggest impact um, at least that's to, to my knowledge. Would you guys agree with that? Or you yeah, guys? I think that's yeah. pretty fair. Yeah, yeah. yeah I agree. <clears throat> um, I mean, R.C. Sproul was r- real big, and he died, you know, I don't even know how long, was it five, ten years yeah, ago now? I can't remember. So. Yeah. But but Keller was, and Keller was in that same that same kind of stream. And I've been listening to um, his biography by Colin Hansen. Uh, as I've been working over at the building, I've been listening to it. I'm about three quarters of the way through it. And it's a, it really is a, it's a great book. Um, it, I've learned a, a lot about him that I wasn't aware of his, um, upbringing, his background, how he came to faith. And it's a, it's a really interesting story. And he was raised in a kind of Protestant Christian home. It was more of a Lutheran home and it was, it was a, an Arminian home. And it, his mom was, um, a very strict Christian. They were kind of from the holiness tradition that believed in perfectionism, which means that they believe that you get measures of grace to, to be perfect in this life. And so she was really hard on him. And he, he, he kind of had a, a Martin Luther upbringing hmm. where he knew he was a sinner. He knew he tried really hard to be perfect <clears throat> and he couldn't. And by the time of and he, and he was a very uh, smart guy. From early age, he had a book, he had a book in his face uh, just about huh. nonstop, and he, he loved to read. <clears throat> he ends up going to a, he goes to college, and he, he, he's an atheist by the, time, by the time he's in college. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, he's huh. an atheist, and he was very much like, the term we would, uh, he was, he was infatuated. So at that time in the, I think it was the sixties, you know, the, the sexual revolution was going on. The civil rights movement was going on. He was on college campus and he was just, revolution was in the air and he was, by his own words, he was a revolutionary and he was really smart. So he was into philosophy and he was reading a lot of philosophy and he's reading a lot of these things. And he, like the freedom that the revolution was, was bringing him. 
But eventually, um, he, he comes to faith through some friends. He was going to the, inter, I think it was InterVarsity Fellowship. Yeah, that's right. He was going to InterVarsity Fellowship just because he was so lonely. He was an introvert, and he didn't have any friends. And so he knew that if he went to InterVarsity Fellowship, he could meet some people and, and have friends. And these people loved to debate and loved to argue. And so he he could read this philosophy and then he could come and debate it in, uh, in InterVarsity Fellowship. And long story short, he comes to faith. Someone, I can't remember if it was what the exact book was, but I know C.S. Lewis and Mere, Mere Christianity was really influential during this time, but he had all kinds of different influences. And one of the things that I was blown away as I've been listening to this book is you see God's hand of providence in Tim's life um, in a very special way. He has amazing, he just runs into like amazing professors and amazing men that answer the big questions for him. And then he becomes more influential, more successful than basically all of them, yeah. you know, but he just, he learns this, you know, one piece of Christianity from this guy, another piece. And it was just, it was just fascinating to hear his kind of his backstory and how he came to faith and to understand Tim Keller and to understand the church that he come, he came to plant, which is Redeemer Presbyterian church in New York city. They said of the, they said of the early days of Redeemer, they said it felt like, it felt like young life all over again. It felt like, you know, like it was a college ministry. Like yeah. that's what it was. Yeah. And Tim, as a skeptic, he, and as an intellectual, he was a brilliant apologist. So with InterVarsity Fellowship, he was just great at leading people to Christ. Mm. He was great at meeting seek seekers where they are. And there was like 12 kids in this InterVarsity Fellowship for like the first two or three years. And then as Keller, you know, grew in his faith, that thing took off and it started, they started having events and rallies and dozens and then hundreds of people started coming to faith. Yeah. And it's funny because how he came to faith and where he came to faith in this college, this little liberal arts college, you see how it formed him for the rest of his life. You know, he was, yep. um, and, and he came up in a really religious home. And so he needed, he didn't needed to hear the gospel like Martin Luther needed to hear the gospel. And so, his, and what I mean by that is that our good works couldn't get us there. And it was so funny. He comes to faith and then it was like years later, he, he becomes a Calvinist. And then years later he becomes like a Kuyperian, yeah. uh, you know, has the influence of Kuyperian. And then he, reads another guy and he falls in love with the, the idea of being in the city and, and for the city. And then he takes Edmund, a, cl a class with Edmund Clowney and Edmund Clowney shows him how Christ is the answer to the old Testament. And that blows his mind and all the Jesus is the better, all that kind of stuff that yeah. all came from Edmund Clowney. Okay. And just, he just would have these professors. So basically what happens is he goes, he graduates college there. He goes on uh, to seminary at Gordon Conwell he meets all these guys at Gordon Conwell. He meets his wife, and his wife, I didn't know this, but his wife is 
what do they call her? I forgot the name. Something like a Spitfire or something, but she's just a bulldog. They said she is just an intense woman. And she gets convinced. So she was in like women's liberation. And she, she went to Gordon Conwell to be a pastor. Mm. And then she has, um, what is the woman whose husband was killed Elizabeth on the mission? Elizabeth Elliot. She has Elizabeth Elliot. Yeah. They both have Elizabeth Elliot. They take as many classes with Elizabeth Elliot as possible. And as Elizabeth Elliot gets up and she goes off and she's like, I'm paraphrasing. She's like, I'm smarter than anybody in this room. She's like, I've got more influence than anybody in this room. I'm a better communicator than anybody in this room. I've got more degrees. I've been on the missions field. I've seen this, this. I've suffered more than anybody in this, in this room. Yeah. If anybody in this room thinks they have a right to be a pastor, it's me. And guess what? None of that matters because the word of God says I can't be an elder and I can't preach. Wow, that's great. And Kathy Keller is just floored. Yeah. And they're like, heck yes. This is, and they just, they said, yep, this is what we are. Yeah. And and we're all the other, so she completely has this 180 in college, and then her and her and Tim end up getting married, and then and she she graduates with her, um, I think it's an MDiv. I think she had an MDiv from mm. Gordon Conwell yeah. with wow. with Tim, and everybody says they, they they say it like this: they co-pastored, like she planted with him, like much of his success was because of her, even though she never preached a sermon. She never was a pastor. Mm. She saw her ministry. She saw Tim and the kids as her ministry. Wow. Mm. So I found a lot of similarities here. In the book, they were saying Tim would forget to drink water. Tim would forget to eat. He was so intense and so focused on his studies that she would have to make sure he ate, make sure he had water. And that was make sure he slept, make sure he, because he was just die hard. And I'm like, man. That's how I, that's that's how I am, and that's how my wife is. So, but it was really cool to to hear that side of the story, um, and then <clears throat> from there, they go. They, they're first off, everybody on campus knew like Tim was brilliant. He was quiet in all the classes, but then everybody would come to his dorm to hear him take whatever the professor taught on. He had the ability to disseminate it, or is that the right word? Down to distill it down to like normal person's understanding. So he could take the brilliance of an Edmund Clowney or whoever he was listening to and then make it better to his own, to his, to the students. And they would debate it. And he, he was seen as this leader and he was very smart and he had, had a lot of influence on campus. But then when it came time to find a, um, to get a call, yeah, Everybody else got calls. He, he graduated summa cum laude and everything, but everybody else got calls, and he didn't. What do you mean by calls? So <clears throat> by the end of Bible college, you, you want to be, you want to receive a call, and what that means is <clears throat> someone from the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America, a church would call you. They would say, hey, we want you to be your pastor. We want you to come and interview with us. So it's almost like a, like a job offer. Yeah. And... Like a lot of people got him and Tim didn't get him and it was kind of depressed and didn't know what happened. And then he gets this, he gets, finally gets a call to kind of a small town in Virginia. Yeah. Hopewell, Virginia. I'm really curious about this because a blue collar community, blue collar mining town, uh, chemical town. 
Like they made chemicals there. Yeah. And when he got there, they had just had like a horrible spill. And so there had like, it was like a <clears throat> terrible time to be a part of that town. And yet, and these are blue collar people. He said no one in his, he said only like one or two people in his church had a college degree and they were teachers. Oh my goodness. And so he's this kind of brilliant young guy, <clears throat> but he takes this job and he, he realizes right away, I'm not equipped for this. I can't preach the normal way that I've been taught to preach. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's, it was said that he brought the cookies down to the bottom shelf. That's not what he did. He learned how to speak their language. He learned how they, they joke in there. He's reading. He, he, he loves, um, you know, what are the, what are the, what are the, the, the musicals, you know? Musicals in college and musicals on oh oh like like fiddle in the roof and, all that kind and, of stuff uh, yeah he had all of these things memorized he was a quintessential nerd oh my goodness okay? he played the trombone like he was an artist he was an intellectual but n- none of his no one related to any of that yeah so he became they were all into football and so he became a <laughs> Pittsburgh Steelers fan yeah sure because R C Sproul was a huge Oh yeah, and R.C. Stroll by this time had become an influence in in Tim's life as well, and so he becomes a, just decides I'm going to become a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. My goodness! And like one Sunday they said he he was up there and, and Pittsburgh was was going to the Super Bowl like three times in a row or something. Yep. And he 70s. unbuttoned his shirt. He unbuttoned his his he took off his tie and unbuttoned his shirt and he had a Steelers jersey. Oh my goodness! Under it. And so he's just learning how to speak the everyday man's yeah. language. Such a far removal from. New York City. That's why I was so curious about how in the world he came from, you know, he got from Virginia to there. But what did he learn while he was there in Virginia? It sounds like what you're saying is he learned how to speak the everyday, every man's language kind of a, kind of feel, wherever, wherever he was at. Yeah. He was, he was an evangelist. Yeah. And he learned in college that you had to understand the people that you were communicating with mm. in order the big word is to contextualize the yeah, gospel right. to this person. And he, he was never in New York City. Um, bef- I mean, before, I can't remember when he moved there, 1980 or something like that. <clears throat> so he was, I can't remember, up. where was he from? Do you remember? Yeah, Allentown. He was. Uh, it's that's um, uh, northeast um, of uh, or northeast uh, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. That's, yeah. the, yeah. that's where, mm-hmm. so he was like in and around Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, so he was a northerner, right? Right. And then he goes down to the south, and yeah. he has to learn to speak a new <laughs> language. And this is the south, and in the, I think it was the late seventies, and so there was a lot of the racial turmoil and animosity that was going on mm-hmm. down there. He had to learn to speak their language. He would preach. Um, Sunday morning, he would do Sunday school Sunday morning, then he would preach the service on Sunday, and that eventually became two services. Then he would do Sunday night service, and he would do Wednesday night service. Wow. So he was only there for nine years. Well, I mean, that's pretty good for your first call. He was there for nine years, and he preached over 1,500 sermons. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So he learned, and he's the one who always says, your first 100 sermons are awful. Yeah. Like, they're always going to be awful. But he learned how to communicate and contextualize the gospel to uh, the, the blue collar town. Now, mm-hmm. on top of that, he was the only pastor. He was doing hospital visits. Mm-hmm. He was doing counseling, mm-hmm. all kinds of, I mean, he was stressed out, worn out. It nearly killed him. And I think they got it got up to about 200 people. 
it got up to about 200 people yep. down there. And then he decided, I can't remember what got him there, but he decided to go to, to get his PhD at Westminster. And that's in Philadelphia. And all kind of cool cultural and theological influences was, were happening at Westminster at the time. And, um, you know, I think that was where Edmund Clowney was the president of, of Westminster. And there was Harvey Kahn and Richard Lentz and just a lot of different uh, influences that were going on up there. And he goes to, and he gets his PhD and he write, he, he ends his PhD does his study on the, the deaconette or the deacon ministry. What is a deacon? What do deacons do? And he wrote a whole book on um, the deaconette. And then it kind of got, it, it was so, and his whole idea was that the church, and this is their language, <clears throat> I wouldn't echo this language now, but the church needs to be involved in social justice. And he means fighting racism at the time. He means caring for the poor. Um, and the deacons, the, 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 you know, he studied Calvin's, Calvin in Geneva and then some other of the Puritans and the ways that the deacons hmm. basically served the city, right. served the poor. Right. And that was what his uh, thesis was on. And that got published and that got spread wide, wide through the PCA. And that kind of started, he started going to speak to different large churches and at the denomination and different things. And, but he just thrived in that environment and, and he loved Philadelphia. By this time they had three kids, him and Kathy had three kids, three boys. And he, it felt like a sabbatical. He was worn out from the nine years in Virginia and he, gets to Philadelphia and now he's just reading books, sta I mean books on books on books. Living his dream. He's living his dream. <laughs> he becomes an adjunct professor there and then he eventually mm. becomes a full-time he gets wow. a full-time professor. And he's rubbing shoulders now with Francis Schaefer and he's getting really influenced by Francis Schaefer. He's still an evangelist. He's they were talking about like his his classes would be packed out. Everybody loved mm. listen to him, listen to him communicate. And then someone in the PCA <clears throat> says, we need, at this time, New York City was a horrible place to live. It was very violent. It was being overrun by gangs. If you've heard of white flight, white people were leaving the city because it was becoming so violent and so overrun. And, and PCA says, we need to plant a church in New York City. Tim, you're super popular. You're super influential. Not super popular at the time. He wasn't that popular, but he was influential. He's smart. We want you to help us find the right guy to plant okay. in in New York City, and we're going to fund him. We're going to we're going to make sure we we fund him well, um, because the the popular it was something like only nine percent of New York City was was evangelical and going to church at the time. It was yep. um, it was just not not thriving there. The gospel was not thriving, and. Basically, Tim recruits this guy who was an accountant and a, a mover and a shaker. So these guys were New York City. Wall Street was kind of booming at the time. And so people were filthy rich and the, the Wall Street was filthy rich. And yet it was kind of a decadent city and it was getting expensive to live. And and he, so he recruits a guy that's kind of like that. He he'd came to come to faith, but he was a, an accountant at a, at a large corporation. I can't remember what it was. He had, has, had his MBA from Harvard. And Tim's like, I think you're the guy that could reach the city. And then Tim goes like to London, 
in the UK to, and he preaches like 19 times in 20 days. And he comes back and there's a voicemail on his, and his, well, on his answering machine. <laughs> and it's this guy and he says, I've spent three days praying and fasting and God says, I'm not released. I, I'm going to stay at my church. I'm not the guy. And Tim tries and tries and tries and, and can't find anybody. <clears throat> and then someone basically says, maybe, Tim, maybe, maybe you're the guy. Maybe you're the man. And Tim's like, well, he goes home and talks to Kathy. Kathy's like, absolutely not. <laughs> and because they've got three kids and she doesn't want to raise three kids in this horrible city, right. in the middle of the city. And a book that was popular at that time was called Cross and the Switchblade uh, by something Wilkerson. I've read the book. I read it early on in my life. Uh, and it's about a guy that moved to New York City to, to work with the gangs. Yeah. He's a white guy. Yeah. Worked, and he ends up getting stabbed and all kind of stuff. And he, he gives the gospel and there's like a little revival that happens in the, in the gang, gang members and stuff. And she's like, heck no, I'm not sending my kids there. Like she was really passionate about that book in college. But then when it's like, well, you should go there. She's like, oh no, not me and my three kids. <laughs> and then Tim goes, all right, babe, well, if you don't think we should go, then we won't go. And then Kathy whips around and she goes, oh no, you're not doing that to me. <laughs> she's like, her, huh? she's, yes, exactly. He put it on her. And then she goes, no, no, no. She goes, you got to make this decision, Tim. Mm. She goes, and if you make the decision and we got to go, then I got to deal with the Lord on it. Mm. And Tim went away and prayed and, and then the Lord convinced him, you need to go to New York City. He came back. He said, I think God's called us to make the decision. And Kathy Keller said, that was the most manly thing I've ever seen Tim do. Wow. He said he was scared. Yep. He was fearful. He didn't know if he could do it. And he made the decision and she got on board and they rented these two apartments that connected and they lived in one and they did their ministry in the other one huh. and they could, they were connected and they could fit 50 people in there. Yeah. And interesting fact, he's never lived anywhere else. Wow. He's still same place, same place. Wow. So same place. I think it's 40 something years they've lived in the same apartment. Yeah. And uh, long story short, man, they start praying and Tim's doing what he does and he's just an evangelist. People start coming to faith. The church starts growing and it, I mean, it just multiplies and, and everybody said it felt like young life. It felt like a college ministry. All of, all of these young people were coming to faith and, and the most, the, some of the things I've never understood about Keller he did the opposite of what most people do. So at a time where people were getting more casual and more laid back, he said, I'm going to wear a suit on Sunday mornings. Yeah. He had orchestras. He had jazz music in the, in the evening and folk music in the, in the evening. He, it was like, it was lit liturgical by this time. He's convinced on, um, the kind of doctrinal stream of orthodoxy. So he came to faith like most people come to faith. It, it, like a, he was a Jesus person. Like if you have you ever yeah. heard of the Jesus, Jesus people movement, sure. he came to faith in that Jesus people movement. It was just like hippies that were all about Jesus. And then he becomes a Calvinist and then he becomes a Presbyterian. And, uh, you know, he starts baptizing babies or he believes in baptizing babies. And then he 
understands biblical theology, and then he becomes kind of for the city, and then he, be, he sees the importance of the historical orthodox professions of faith. He had never read through the um, Westminster Confession of Faith until he ha- found out he had to, he was going to be quizzed on a, on his ordination. <laughs> so he had to, he basically would me- memorize it for his, for his ordination. And so he, so he, he, he plants this church that's super, the word we would use is missional, very evangelistic, reaching the lost. And yet the Sunday morning gather, gathering is liturgical. Oh, covenantal. He became covenantal. He understood the covenantal nature of the faith, how the old, you know, um, we've talked about that on the podcast. All of these pieces just kind of fell in place for him. Um, and yet his preaching, he's known primarily for his preaching and for his writing. He didn't write anything until I think he was in his late forties, early fifties. Well, other than the deaconette manual that became, um, one ministries of mercy, ministries of mercies. He's, he adapted that and turned it into one of his books called Ministries of Mercies. That's the only book he wrote, and they, that was for his PhD dissertation until he was like early fifties, because yeah. he he just focused on planting the church. And Keller is known for a couple things. Number one, he's known for what we would call the third way, which he, the gospel isn't legalism or moralism. And the gospel isn't licentiousness, right? Or just you can do whatever you want. Right. The gospel's a third way. Right. The gospel is, I am so loved by Jesus Christ that I want to obey him with the rest of my life, right? Basically. <clears throat> um, and that can often, well, we can get into a lot of different things, but because he, he also kind of, tur- he, he used this in a political uh, uh, turn as well that, the gospel isn't left. The gospel isn't right. The gospel is its own separate thing. And I think I can understand that a little bit from, from his perspective. I think things have changed in our day and, a, but, day and age. But anyways, he's a phenomenal communicator. He can take deep truths about the gospel. He can see Jesus in Old Testament passages. He can make it deeply personal. He has, at Westminster, he ran into... Uh, David Paulison and CCEF, and he starts running with those guys. Kevin, I know you know those guys. And so he starts seeing how the gospel is the answer to our personal problems like anxiety and fear and stress. And and he's, he starts working as a good missionary to his city and see all these people are worshiping money. They're spending, they're, they're in the city to make money and then they want to retire and move somewhere else. They're super anxious. They don't know who they are in their identity. They've got sexual freedom that's leading to all kinds of sexual brokenness. Um, they're lonely. And he identified these needs, and then he said, and I know the gospel is the answer, so I'm going to exegete the culture, and, and in every one of my sermons, I'm going to talk about one of these needs and show how from Scripture that the gospel is the answer. Mm. So he wanted to be biblical. He wanted to be historically orthodox. He wanted to be reformed. He wanted to be Calvinistic and Kuyperian, but he wanted to be practical and personal. And, and he was just really good at it. Mm-hmm. He, and then when, when he went, moved to New York City, it was like he was custom designed for it yeah. because he's kind of a hoity-toity, highfalutin, you know, high yeah. culture type of guy. He yeah. likes classical music and he likes the... Broadway, and he likes, he reads all of the papers of the city, and he could articulate 
the liberals in that city, he could articulate their beliefs better than they could articulate themselves. And then he could show how if they follow them, they'll never be happy, that they're incomplete and only the gospel can give them what they actually mm -hmm. really want. Right, right. Yeah, it, he was impressive in the sense that he was able to enter into conversations with people that could be very intimidating in terms of their liberal understanding of things and not, I, I always admired his courage I saw it as courage, uh, but it, it was it was courage that came out of an ability to simplify the really what was what was that issue. So you would have these complicated issues, and yet he was he would be able to bring it down to kind of simple terms in order to really address it, and then show how the gospel just addresses those those issues. And I I very you know admired that uh, that ability, which which gave him the courage to step into those those rooms with with folks who really thought differently than he did and really believed differently than he did. It was pretty impressive. His you know? biographer said he was so good. He was, he was a natural listener. Like er, something happened. I can't remember early on. He was argumentative. He would like, when he came to faith, the guy that led him to faith, he would come over like 10 o'clock, stay till 2 AM, hmm. just arguing him, arguing with him. Not something, you know, Tim Keller, I met him once and I didn't know this. He's a giant. He's 6'4". Wow. Okay, big guy. He is a big dude. And they talked about this guy that he got saved at his house. The ceilings were so low that Tim had to, uh, and Tim had to like bow down to get into him. So Tim would wait outside for, and, and like call down to him and make the guy come outside and they'd argue out on the street. Huh. You know? And so he was argumentative, but then something changed in him that he became, he wasn't showy, he wasn't pushy, he was um, a natural listener. Yeah. And so he was really good at listening to people and then taking their questions and make and pu putting them in his sermons. And what he would do early on, and they would he would preach a sermon, they would have a Q&A right afterwards. Hmm. And he said he was blown away because when he first started preaching, the New Yorkers would shout out. They would shout out objections. He's like New Yorkers. He was trying to reach authentic New Yorkers, not the people that, not like the Iowa people that were at, in New York for a season and then going to move out. He was trying to reach authentic New Yorkers, and he'd never met people like this. They would shout out their object, objections. They would they would ask questions while he's preaching, and to stop that, he said, "Hold on, we're going to do a Q and A after the after the sermon." Where if I have a Q and A, very few people come to the Q and A. Right. You know what I mean? Right. In Iowa, but these he would have a Q and A and Kathy would help him with a Q and A and there would be, you know, 20 new believers at the Q and A yeah. and they would ask their objections and he would answer them. And then it's like he hmm. memorized them because then the next week he would answer the objection from his text or from, from the yeah, scripture. Right. And so these New Yorkers were hearing their objections in favorable terms. Like he never would, uh, he would never like, um, uh, um, straw man their arguments he would state their arguments better than they could name it themselves but right. then he would deconstruct them and then show how Christ is the answer right. and this uh, and you know basically the, the ministry takes off and I, I, I'm, I don't need to get into it too much Goes, grows into a mega church he ends up starting um, he starts Table Talk Magazine which I didn't know that really? and then R.C. Sproul took it over I thought Sproul took yep. it started it okay. yep. there's all kind of Crazy, 
crazy. Uh, um, Interesting. So he didn't really get along with Sproul too much, or he got along with him, but he didn't really find that much of an affinity with him right. because Sproul was a jock. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Sproul, was, Sproul yeah. was all about sports, and you know he was an a- athlete in college, and yeah. so he loved football, and he loved, a, and so he just didn't find an affinity, an affinity with. Uh, with Sproul, and then Sproul ends up going down to Florida and starting, and then he, then he takes the table talk okay. with him. Okay. And so Keller starts Gospel Coalition, Keller starts City City Collective, starts planting multiple churches. There's over 700 churches now in the City City Collective. Uh, I can't even remember all the stuff that. Is, is Redeemer been a part of. actually have a building? Did they ever have a building? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. They, they, they have like three, I think. Okay. I think they have three. Yeah. So, how did he get uh, connected with Acts 29, where then you got introduced to him? Okay, another interesting story. So when he was looking for funding, there's this PCA church called Spanish River Church. I think it's in Florida. And these guys, this guy was really passionate about church planting before church planting was cool. He was funding church plants and he had a big church himself. And and so he funded one third of Tim Keller's ministry to begin it. Now, what's interesting is... This pastor at Spanish River Church was the one who started Acts 29. Mm. And then he recruited Mark Driscoll, and Mark Driscoll came in and took over Acts 29. But this Spanish River Church funded Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City and funded the Acts 29 network in Mars Hill in the early days. Wow, that's resources. And yeah. using your resources well. Yeah. Wow. And nobody, very few people know of this guy, yeah. this pastor. And look what he, yeah. I mean, funded one of two of the most influential pastors right. in the last forty years, right? right? And, and 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 funded basically. So Acts twenty nine's got seven hundred something church. That's fourteen hundred churches that came out of Spanish River Church funding church planting. Right, right. Fascinating. Yeah, that's awesome. So. When did I read my first Tim Keller book or hear my first Tim Keller sermon? I think it was when I was in Omaha, possibly. It might have been a little bit before Omaha. Okay. But the first book of his I read, when I went to Axman at boot camp, someone told me about a church planting resource manual from Redeemer Presbyterian that Tim Keller used. Basically, Tim Keller was so methodical and he was brilliant in so many ways. He, it, it, his story, there was so much providence, but also everything that he planned happened. Hmm. Like it worked, right. you know? And he, him and Kathy joked, like, how do you start a revival? You move to the city a month after God, God starts a revival. And in one sense, that, that there is truth to that. Yeah. And there's fascinating like sociological data that goes along with it. Like if you remember Rudy Giuliani yes. oh, yeah. and his no broken windows policy in New York City. Yep. So he took over as the gov- mayor. He mayor. took over as mm-hmm. the mayor yep. and he had this no broken window policy. And the no broken window policy was basically any building that has broken windows, we're going to fine the owner of that building because once windows start getting broken, kids start knocking out windows and they don't get fixed, then property values start going down, crime starts going up, and basically it leads to, basically something as small as broken windows leads to 
an increase in crime. Right. So Giuliani starts cracking down on crime at the same time. Well, when he's cracking down on crime, that makes the neighborhood safer. These rich people start moving back into the neighborhood. And so that's why Keller, that's why they said, like, how do you start a revival? Well, you move to a neighborhood a month after God's already decided to start a revival. (laughs) And they had 24 hour prayer meetings. They did all, I mean, they really had a lot of prayer going on in there as well. Hmm. But there was a lot, God was just doing something unique in New York City at, at the time. And so there's some just a lot of um, fascinating things. So I think I, I read that manual and then I probably, the next book I read was probably The Prodigal God. You guys read that one? Nope. So Prodigal God, well, if you haven't read it, uh, you, you, you have been influenced by it. Mm-hmm. So when I, when I, when I, when you hear about the the story, the story of the prodigal son, or the the story of the two sons, what what do you think about? Got the prodigal son, and you've got the uh, you've got the other son. Um, yeah, I mean, typically the the story of uh, somebody being awakened and turn turning back to, to come back to God and hope that God will, or turn back to his father. Sorry, turn back to his father and hope that his father will receive him back. Mm-hmm. So, what is that story about? What's the what's the main point of that story? Son coming back, forgiveness. Okay, what else? <laughs> okay, <laughs> nothing. What about the older brother? Joel doesn't have a mic, but Joel's yelling Joel's for the giving us the answers over here. It's about yeah. legalism <laughs> and license. Yeah. Sorry, I can't say it now. So, <laughs> well, you guys haven't read it, but I, I figured that you'd be that you that you were aware of it. So Keller building off of clownies, the story is kind of wrongly called. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. The story of the prodigal son. Right. Because the story begins a man had two sons. Two sons. Yeah. It's about two sons. And one of them, the younger one, comes to him and says, I want my inheritance now. Basically I wish you were dead. And then the story says, and the father divided his property between them. Yeah, it's true. So he gives his property to the younger brother and to the older brother. And Keller, in this book, and it's one of his most widely, it is his most widely recognized sermon and book, Hmm. because he, everybody knows about the younger son, right? but very few people look at the older son. And the older son was the moralistic do-gooder. He was the one who thought he earned it. He deserved it. Remember when he comes back and says, you killed the fatted calf for this one who's spending your money on prostitutes and I've been over here and I've never disobeyed you and I've only served you and you never even gave me and my friends a goat. Mm. Right. And the father says, son, you've been with me always and all that I have is yours. And so Keller brilliantly from Clowney's Insights said, this is a story about two sons. One son that, that runs to, to license runs to go live the worldly way. And the other son who has dutiful obedience but joyless right, and he yeah. doesn't care about his dad. He thinks he's earned it. He thinks he's so both of these sons are strangers to grace. Yeah. One is running from God through legalism. The other one is running from God and grace through license. Right. And so that blew me up because I was the younger son for sure, my er, my younger days. And then once I came to faith, I came to faith in a pretty legalistic type of church. And I, I tried my best to be a good old boy right. after that. And so 
I learned that the gospel is not only for the prostitutes and the sinners and the gangbangers, but the gospel is also for the, the boys that stay home and try to do the yeah, best and right. try to be to be good. Right. And think they're not sinning, which is the wild part. Yeah, hundred percent. Right. With the bitterest heart. <laughs> yeah, with the bitterest heart. Yeah. Oh, and he says, when the, the older the older brother says, "This son of yours returns," it's like, oh. This son of yours? You mean your brother? Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's your blood right there. Yeah, that's yeah. your brother. But he doesn't. He does. He disowns him. He disowned him. Mm, yeah. This guy doesn't deserve it. He doesn't earn it. Yep. And so he gets really frustrated at the grace that the father gives him. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, the story isn't even about the sons. The story is about the father yeah. who gives grace both to the legalistic son and to the license, okay. li- the, 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 the liberal son. But here's one of the key points Keller makes: grace is harder to receive if you're an older brother. Mm. Because Jesus sure. said, sure. the prostitutes and sinners enter the kingdom of God before sure. you. And, and he points out, remember, he's telling this to the Pharisees. So we know who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees are the older brother. Right. right? So anyways, that book blew my mind. That book really changed my life. And the ter- church, Tim Keller or the Redeemer Presbyterian Church Planting Manual, I went through the entire thing in a coffee shop in Omaha, West Omaha, and I, through that manual, I meticulously organized and planned hmm. and designed Sacred City Church. What do you know? That's good. Okay. And almost, we're doing almost everything that that I wrote down on a piece of paper and put in a prospectus, we're still doing everything wow. the, the same way. Identities and rhythms, wow. missional community, lit- liturgy, um, you know, hymns, Christ-centered, expository preaching, mm-hmm. eldership-led, all of this stuff came from that. He had missional communities even with the No, no, no. He had, he, the, the manual doesn't tell you how, what kind of church to build. It teaches you how to exegete your culture as mm-hmm. a missionary, yeah. what questions to ask your culture, what questions to, to get from your theological tradition and your, he calls it a theological vision. It later became um, center church. And so he just makes you ask the questions, what does my city need? What is my theological tradition? Like, what are my guardrails, right? Yeah. You know, and then what does my city need? And, yeah. and that's, that's how, so that was super influential for yeah. me. And then I bought his, um, so back in the day, you had to buy his sermons. <laughs> so Wow. Originally, he had a tape ministry and then a CD ministry, and you had to buy them. Right. And then once I found him in probably 2010 or something like that, you had to download and purchase yeah. his sermons. Yeah. Wow. And so I would do that occasionally, and I was I was blown away by his preaching. I, I've never heard anything like it. Mm. And then I eventually, I have Logos Bible software, and his sermon collection comes on, and then I can purchase all of his sermons for the past like 40 years. And, and so I've read, I've read more Tim Keller sermons than any other preacher. Um, that's ever that I've never, I haven't read any, any preacher more than I've read of, of Keller. Mm -hmm. So I, Tim Keller taught me how to find Jesus in the old Testament thematically, um, you know, all, all through the scripture, how to see the gospel, how to understand the narrative arc of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, mm-hmm. all of that I basically learned from Tim Keller. Wow. And then I've read almost every one of his books, except for some of his newer ones. Um, 
And, uh, you know, his reason for God books, his meaning, the meaning of God taught me apologetics. It was presuppositional before I knew what that was. It was kind of a gateway drug into presuppositional apologetics. And so I've been, I don't think there's any preacher that I'm aware of. <clears throat> John Piper was my first major influence. Mm -hmm. And then Tim Keller was my second. And then Tim Keller became more influential to me because he was so different from me. He was so intellectual and artistic and, um, and I'm so passionate and aggressive, let's just say like, so his personality was very different from me. Mm. You know, which book, uh, was a bestseller, New York New York Times. The reason for God. Reason for God. Yeah, that was okay. his first major book he released, and it was a New York Times bestseller. Wow, first yeah. major book, and it became a New York Times bestseller, which really is a testament to the fact that he was able to speak to the language that people could understand who were not part of his crowd. You know, yeah. not, not the church and I, crowd. I, I still recommend that book to anyone. Um, I remember I've listened to that book three times. I've got I've got that book on my bookshelf. I've got that book in my my Kindle, and I've got that book in my audiobooks. Huh. And I remember the early years of Sacred City, I would listen to that book on repeat while mowing my grass. Mm. <clears throat> because the apologetic, the, 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 how to get behind culture and uh, show that everybody needs God, yeah. and this is why, it's just a brilliant book. So, so um, we said a lot of great things about um, Tim Keller, um, but as you look up to any mentor, any person that you thrive to, like, you know, like, hey, I want to be like that guy. Like, was there anything that you saw, like, hey, that's one thing I don't want to do as a pastor or as <clears throat> growing my church or any of those things? Yeah. Um, yes, for sure. And it comes with... There, there's always this balance, and the balance is between, I would say, evangelism and discipleship. I read this <clears throat> review by a woman that was in Redeemer Presbyterian for years, and she was welcomed into Keller's home. She knew them personally. She loved them. She had nothing but great things to say about Keller. He was a kind man. He was real. There was never any scandal in his ministry, which is phenomenal. Uh, he was he, he he was a holy man. He was he was he loved Jesus. And she, but she, this is what she said. She said, <clears throat> "I came in as a skeptic, atheist or agnostic. After months, I came to see that the gospel was what I needed. It was the answer to all my problems, all these different things. And so, <clears throat> I believed and I became a Christian. And I was personally discipled by Kathy Keller. I went to her Bible studies, and she taught me so much." And then after a couple years, I realized what the Bible taught about abortion. Then I realized what the Bible taught about male headship and female submission. I learned what the Bible taught about LGBTQ issues. And so this was, this was, she said something, <clears throat> excuse me, she said something like, this was a soft fundamentalism. So in, in some sense, what Keller did so good was he was so good at presenting the gospel for outsiders, but he was still orthodox in his beliefs, where most people that are good at evangelism, uh, reaching the lost, mm -hmm. they're really 
just theological liberals right. that once you get inside, they're just so soft and so squishy on everything. Mm -hmm. They have no hard edges. Right. Right. And so they, people never learn what the Bible really teaches about hard issues. Well, you're, Keller very rarely talked about abortion and things like that from the stage. Mm -hmm. But once you got in and you started studying and you were in the inside, then you're going to learn these things. And so this woman, in this article that came out last week, she said, like, I, be I became a Christian, this is her words, but then once I found out what they believed about all these other things, I left the church and I left Christianity. Hmm. And so hmm. there, there is... Keller believes that you can do evangelism and discipleship at the same time. And the reason he believes that is because the gospel is the key to justification and the gospel is the key to sanctification. But most churches are going to fall on one side of the coin or, you know, they're going to fall on one side of the horse. They're going to either be more evangelistically driven and therefore ignore the difficult texts of scripture and the hard stuff that people don't want to hear, or they're going to be more discipleship driven and not care as much about what the outsiders want to hear, yeah. right? And they're going to speak to the Christians. <clears throat> I think, I think because, because of his evangelistic bent, I think he was softer on discipleship. He was softer on pre, he was pre, he was soft on preaching the stuff that New Yorkers didn't want to hear. Mm -hmm. And I think that was, um, a lack of, that was a failure in discipleship. And again, this is me from the outside. I'm not a part of that church and I'm reading this person who was inside of the church. Um, but I, I think Tim Keller was a gift. I think he was a, here, here's another thing that I think is a little negative or, 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 or probably a negative. And this happens with any famous pastor. I think Tim Keller is unique in that I don't think he let the fame get to his head. He, he remained a humble guy from my perspective. That's hard to do, even with like the negative stuff that comes at you, but also the praise that you get to stay in the middle at all times. Very hard. One of the hardest things. Very hard to do. But this is probably my biggest critique, and I don't. It has nothing. I don't think it has anything to do with Tim. Tim Keller was arguably a genius. Okay, he's he's probably on the spectrum um, autistic. I mean, he could read really fast. He could memorize. He could distill things down to the simple person. He could, in his sermons, he's quoting from the Village Voice, which is a New York, you know, Manhattan newspaper or whatever. He's vote, he's quoting from, you know, hmm. all these different hmm. cultural influences that everybody knew from, oh, he, he loved Lord of the Rings. That was another good thing. He loved Lord of the Rings. He's <laughs> quoting from all these different things. He could bring it all together. He he can do it because he's brilliant, mm -hmm. right? The negative is because he was, quote unquote, so successful, thousands of pastors were inspired by him and looked to him and said, okay, that, then that's how I have to do it. Right. The problem is they're not that smart. They're not that with it. They're not that culturally engaged. They don't have all the degrees that he's got. They haven't studied under the men that he studied under. They're faking it. And here's the, the real negative. When parishioners, so church members, start listening to Tim Keller, yeah. they start uh, not liking their own pastor yeah. <laughs> because he's so good. Yeah. He's just so good. Yeah. And so Tim Keller, 
begins to become the standard for the gospel preacher. Right. The only standard. Even though Tim Keller did not preach like the Puritans. Tim Keller did not preach like John Calvin. Tim Keller did not preach like Martin Luther. Tim Keller did not preach like thousands of the honor, you know, honorable, faithful men before him. And so it's unfair to use Tim Keller as the standard for evangelical preaching in this generation. And, and unfortunately, he's, he is that. And, and people expect a good introduction, witty one-liners, some cultural engagement, some heart level questions, some I'm gonna you're gonna you're gonna be backed into a corner a little bit, you're gonna feel guilty about some things, you're gonna feel like the law's coming down on you, and then bam, we get to Jesus and Jesus relieves all that pressure and you walk out rejoicing. Tim Keller invented that model of preaching. Hmm. And many people today that have been influenced by his books or by his uh, sermons expect that exact strategy outline from their preachers. Yeah. And I don't think that's fair. Yeah. So how should we be reorienting expectations? <clears throat> well, you, you should, the mature Christian should walk away from a sermon being fed by the gospel mm -hmm. or, and by the scriptures. We believe all scripture is God-breathed, right? And so that means you could have a sermon on Proverbs and maybe not necessarily get to Jesus and still yet receive from it and be edified, right? The call of the pastor is to build up the saints. Mm -hmm. That's what we're, we're called to do. And so some weeks that's going to be uh, evangelistic, right? Some weeks it might be emotional. Some weeks it might apply the gospel specifically to your heart. And some weeks it might be more of a teaching based, yep. right? Yep. And I think you want biblical faithful. I, I just did you I, say like the sermon shouldn't get to Jesus? No, it. The goal is always to get to Jesus. Okay. But there's going to be some times where it's a lot more difficult. Like I had a couple sermons in Amos or in uh, Ezra that it was like I'm I'm reading this text and I'm like, there's I have no way to get to Jesus here. Mm -hmm. Like I, I'm just out, and so. I, I'm, I'm called to preach Ezra. I'm called to preach through all the books of the Bible. And I don't, I'm not going to force, oh, a big word here. I'm not going to force my hermeneutic. My hermeneutic is that, generally speaking, all scripture points to Jesus in some way, okay? I believe that as a hermeneutic. But when you get into some specific things, it's like, I now, maybe Tim Keller is brilliant enough to, to know how that Ezra text gets to Jesus, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. But once you've, done, once you've done a genealogy and then you've There's used, another one that comes up yeah, later. Yeah. And you've used that <laughs> to get to Jesus and then another one comes up later. Are you going to do the same thing? Right, right. Right, or whatever. So it's, it's not that simple, mm -hmm. right? You, you can't force a I round peg. I was reading uh, R.C. R.C. Sprawl's book, and he was like, "If it's a bad sermon, if you don't dig your way to be able to get to Jesus." Yeah. And then when you said, "Don't get to Jesus," I'm like, "Hold on a second, like, yeah. that's a little off." I, I I have said the same thing. I believe the same thing. Ninety nine point nine percent of the time. We're talking yeah. about an exception here. Yeah, yeah. very we rare have a exception. Very rare exception. Very rare exception. Yeah, There's a passage where it's just so challenging you can't can't make that connection. Mm -hmm. That's pretty rare. Yeah, but 
a, 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 a person, a parishioner who's trained in that model could walk, could walk away upset at that sermon mm-hmm. instead of going, hmm, what did the Lord teach me? What did the Lord reveal to me? Did he feed yeah. me? Did he, was, it, was, he, was he true to the text? Was he, mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have a gospel-centered liturgy where we're always getting to Jesus through our liturgy mm-hmm. every single week. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's one of the reasons we did the gospel-centered liturgy um, is to, to make certain of that, yeah. you know? Yeah. So all that to say, Tim Keller has passed away, and it's very... Sad. I think it was pancreatic cancer. He's been fighting it for a while. And um, leaves behind three boys and his wife. He died, man, at home. He he got to tell his wife, I have no regrets. This isn't bad. I'm going to be with Jesus. Got to be with her in his last moments. Man. Hmm. Amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so do I agree with all of Tim Keller's methodology? No, I don't. Mm-hmm. I think we're in a different season that doesn't fit us here. One, we're not in New York City, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, but he's been a – I am not a guy. I am a guy that can – I was taught this early on, chew the meat, spit the bones. Mm-hmm. And so I have a lot of influences, I and I can do that. I can go, yeah, I disagree with that, but I like this, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> I know there's guys that reject all of, you know, Puritans and all of these guys just because they did one thing that was wrong. I know I'm doing something wrong, you know, like, and so like, we're human beings. So I I get it. And so I'm thankful for him. I'm appreciative of him. And uh, I'm thankful. Now, this this is funny. My second daughter's name is Piper because, well, one... My wife said she went a list of names, and I didn't like any of them. And then Piper and John Piper was one of my big influences. I said, "Yeah, we'll do Piper." And my daughter Nora was gonna be Keller, and except uh, Dr. Alex stole uh, stole Keller. Got the name. Yeah, so Keller was born first, so he got Keller. So I was like, "Crap, I'm not gonna name my daughter the same thing your daughter's name is." <laughs> uh, but so I would, you know, if he wouldn't have if he wouldn't have done it, I would have named my my uh, third daughter huh. after. After him. Why do you know? Yeah. <clears throat> Any other uh, thoughts or questions from you guys? I, I did hear one thing at the end of his life as, as folks would be telling him, you know, I, I hear you're fighting, I hear you're fighting cancer. And he said, oh, no, I'm fighting sin. I thought that was an interesting, yeah. encounter. and I don't know exactly what he meant by that beyond the fact that I think he did, he, I think he wanted to be a man who finished the race well. And part of the, there's a temptation to, I don't know, you know, I'm sure as you're coming to the end of your life, there's a temptation to sin in ways that, you know, being maybe angry or bitter or something of this nature. And so he said the bigger fight, you know, or the fight that he was really in was not a fight against cancer, it was a fight against sin. And of course, cancer, you know, what does that come from? That comes from the fall. Uh, yeah. So maybe that's what he's referring to like as well. Uh, well, he's, re- he's referring to like... I'm I'm still trying to believe the gospel, and I still that yeah, I, I am go. a sinner, and God's yeah. in control of the cancer. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so I'm still fighting the remaining sin in my life. Oh, here, here's something else. Kathy, when she was a teenager, she read. Um, I can't remember if at this time it was *Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe* by C.S. Lewis, or if it was *Mere Christianity*. But she read it, and she loved it so much. She wrote 
C.S. Lewis. And he wrote her back. Oh my! And they became pen pals. Wow. She would, she would, she was writing him about issues in their family, about frustrations at school, about going to college. And he was writing her back. Yeah. He was in his sixties, and he was writing her back. And they've got these cherished letters mm. from C.S. Lewis. Oh my God! How do these people live these lives? Yeah, <laughs> that's wild. amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Uh, and so they went over there once. They went over there one time and met his brother and his son, and and then then C.S. Lewis ended up becoming one of uh, Keller's greatest influences. Yeah, influences, yeah. You know, and, and his reason for, or I mean, in, in mere Christianity, and then all of his books. I mean, Makito Fujimoto or something like that. He is a Japanese artist. Yeah, yeah. And he was in Tim Keller's church, and he said. You, you could always tell when Tim Keller didn't have enough time to prepare his sermon that week because he would just quote C.S. Lewis and Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and so the idea was when if he, doesn't, if he didn't have time to think through his illustrations or his examples, what's going to flow out of him is C.S. Lewis and Lord of the okay. Rings. Yeah, that's amazing. That's cool. I thought what was uh, really unique about him, um, I'm not for sure how old he was, but he uh, wrote the book Prayer. And... Uh, for a guy that's been in the race, a guy you look up to, like for him to not take prayer as serious as you would think he would, um, I think he ended up getting cancer or his wife getting cancer. And in that moment, they start praying together. And like, I mean, he has a yeah. whole book about it, but I thought that was really good. And it just captured my heart. I'm like, as a young man trying to continue in the race, I'm like, okay, I need to make sure prayer is mm. important in my life. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was really good. Mm. Kathy got Crohn's disease, I think. Mm. And had like eight surgeries or something like that within a one-year period or a couple-year period. So that pushed him to prayer, and then he got cancer the first time, mm -hmm. and then God healed him, and then that cancer came back. Prayer was always a challenge for him, but it what he was always devoted to prayer. Yeah, he was he he. he he knew, oh yeah, Richard Loveless, the dynamics of the spiritual mm -hmm. life, that was a huge influence on him. That's the whole revival piece that he mm -hmm. wanted to see. And prayer, he knew prayer was always a prerequisite for revival. Yeah. That's why they started this 24-hour prayer meeting type of deal that was going on. And um, and so, yeah, prayer was always an important aspect mm -hmm. of his ministry. And then Tim Keller might be most notable um, when September 11th happened. His church doubled overnight. Wow. New Yorkers rushed in, yep. and he presided over a lot of the— <clears throat> George Bush was there when he, he, he did that sermon that morning, and the president came, and, and they all these New Yorkers who were lo lost and searching, it, it flooded yeah. their ministries. Yeah. Wow. So again, it's just all providence. It's just all the providence of God. So Good. The Lord has called him home, and he gets to see Jesus— Face to face, he gets to see that high beauty that's, that melts his heart like Sam saw when Sam saw the star. So, uh, man, a life lived well, a life lived for the Lord, and uh, an honorable man. So thank you, Tim Keller. We love you. <clears throat> You've had a huge influence even on us here at Sacred City in Iowa. It's hilarious. New York boy having influence here in Iowa. All right, well, hopefully that was a blessing to you. Hopefully that ministered to you in some way. If you want to read, I, uh, I, would, I would really recommend you get the audio, audio book and listen to Tim Keller by Colin Hansen. It's a great book. And uh, if you've got any questions, email me, justindean at sacredcitychurch.com. We love you. God bless. Mm -hmm.